Welcome to Ballsy, the podcast where I interview successful artists and creators on how they got the balls to sell their art and turn their practice into a profitable business. As a former entrepreneur turned artist, I realized that being an artist is basically like running a small startup. And you, the artist, are the CEO. I talk to artists about their businesses, talk real numbers, growth hacks, tools and tricks, and how they were ballsy enough to make that their career. Welcome to Ballsy. For those who have the balls to sell art, today we are fortunate enough to have someone who I've wanted to speak with for a little while, an artist by the name of Simon Bull, who is, I would venture to say, Instagram famous and has built what looks like crushing art business. And I have so many questions. To start, welcome, Simon. And why don't you give us a little description about your work, just so people have a point of reference, like an Instagram handle, though they'll be in the notes, just so people can look while they're listening, and a description, and then we'll dive right in. Rodney, thanks for inviting me on to Ballsy. It's really fun to meet you and be online with you on this podcast. Yeah, my name yeah. is Simon Bull, and I'm an artist. I don't know what else to say. I enjoy what I do. I've recently started describing myself as a curator of visual experiences because I've segued from just creating art on the canvas to making Instagram reels as actual works of art in themselves. I used to be a painter, but I'm now a little bit more of a performance artist, if you like. Okay, so that's the way you actually look at your content as performance art. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I'm already happy with the way this is going. Just so people have uh, on the performance art stuff and the Instagram stuff, what would you call that style of art? It's material pro like you let the material do the work. It's drip work. It's it. give a verbal description of it and then we'll dig in. Well, a lot of the work I do on Instagram is my pour, paint pouring technique. Yeah. But the majority of my work these days is done with the form of paint pouring, but not just... I do like pure paint pouring, but I also do a form of controlled paint pouring, painting with paint bottles. A little bit like decorating your hot dog with mustard, but it's actually paint. Yeah. And in addition, I still do <clears throat> my more traditional easel painting, which I do time lapses of or plein air painting. So I uh, intersperse my more theatrical works with more kind of traditional stuff. Now, so for a quick history, just because I always like to talk to people of when they converted from whatever life they had to art, what did you do before you were an artist? And what was that process like as you became financially viable enough to become a full-time artist? Well, I'm a little bit unusual. There's no before I was an artist kind of thing. <clears throat> I, I guess there was. Before I was an artist, I was a kid. But when I was a kid, I was an artist. Teachers at school started offering me money in exchange for my artworks when I was a teenager. And I started accepting it, and I've been doing that ever since. Oh, so you're one of the for the very fortunate few who was able to find a cash-generating career selling art right from the get-go. Yeah, it was thrust upon me by offers of cash in oh. my youth, which I accepted. And since then, I've never really been able to get a proper job, so I stuck with it. That's fantastic. <laughs> the and by the way, that's like the surest sign that you're onto something when people just start offering you money. That's usually a good sign that you have a business in front of you. So it, since you're not traditional in that sense, when was the point that you switched from traditional art to Instagram fame? I assume there was a big inflection point there. When did you realize that was the channel and what did that do for your career? That's a great question. And the answer is 
surprisingly interesting because I've been, this has described me as a professional artist since 1976. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I've been around like a little bit. I uh, see in the artwork through many generational shifts, technological shifts, marketing shifts. And I've been involved in social media. I got a Facebook account pretty early on in 2009, or as soon as it became a uh, open to email addresses other than .edu. And yep. so I got in Facebook, involved in selling my art on Facebook in the early days, and I was very successful at it. I also got an Instagram account, but I would just stick a couple of photos on there. And if anybody has got an hour or two to waste, they can scroll all the way down my feed and see my early Instagram photos of pictures of me walking my dog on the beach or something crazy like that. But in more recent days, I started posting the occasional photo of myself or my art on Instagram, a promotional thing or whatever. But then in May this year, I heard a podcast where somebody was saying that reels were pushed to an audience outside of your follower network. And a little light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And so I started doing, re I started creating a few reels that were basically iPhone videos of me pouring the paint like my normal thing, what I was normally doing in my day job. I would come into the studio and do this. And I thought maybe it would be fun to film that. And <clears throat> so I, I did that and I started noticing a really weird thing happening because I had like a thousand followers or something that I was very proud of. It took me 10 years <laughs> to get them. And, uh, and all of a sudden I started getting my followers started just like going up and I was like, my daughter was telling me, dad, you got 15,000 followers. I'd be like, what? And it was like, and then this video, the videos that I put, they'd be like saying, you've got like a hundred thousand views. No, no, you've got like a million views. And it was like, no, it's 10 million views. And, wow. And some of them now have gone to over 43 million views on a single no, reel. No, really? Wow. That's <laughs> yeah. incredible. Yeah, we've got lots of reels that are way over the million, way over the 20 million range. And, wow. And this, so in May this year. So wait a second, so this is from May Instagram. this year? This is from May, May of this year? In May 2022, I was nobody on Instagram, and now I'm Insta-famous. With millions, I've got, I've had like over 300, coming under 400 million views overall since May. And uh, yeah, I get paid the maximum bonus every month from Instagram. And uh, I don't know, it's been a lot of fun. So I have, a, I have so many questions. Like what that, I assume that has some dramatic impact on your sales and your business. It has dramatic, it has had dramatic impact, not so much on the sales. We're still, we're developing that right now. But our main focus has just been growing the follower base, growing the fans, creating good content. At first, we didn't. I didn't kind of go into it like so much as a, an immediate commercial thing. I have three basic tenets behind what I do. Everything that I do should entertain, educate, and inspire. And so that's really my focus on Instagram. I've not been trying to milk it for sales particularly, although we have sold a few things. And the thing is, it's massively helped in terms of our of my exposure. I have galleries in St. Helena, California, and in Carmel. And now we get people from all over the world coming in all the time. Like say, oh, we saw you. I don't work in the galleries myself, but my team are there. And then we get people from all over the world and so on and so, so forth. Yeah. So let's start. Usually the way I start this is it's, well, it's almost like going through the balance sheet. Let's start with revenue. You obviously make 
art, regular art pieces. Mark, what are the price points on those before that? You make, do you, I see you do other stuff as well. So do you do prints? Do you do merch? Do you do, what is the gamut of your production and kind of price points in, do, for each one? <clears throat> okay, we basically do two things. We sell prints slash merch online, which are all created through a fulfillment house. We don't touch that stuff. Okay, it's all automated. Is that like a licensing And then we deal? sell original painting. No, no, I don't like licensing. I'm not really, I don't do a lot of licensing. I, I have done in the past, but I, we just, uh, so we create, yeah, we use different online platforms that will make the prints for us. So people go online, order, the prints get printed and fulfilled, and we don't touch it. We just do the marketing. So prints on demand. So that's print on demand. Okay. And then the other is we sell the paintings through our, through my two galleries. That's how we do it now. But of course, over my career, I've done it lots of different ways, but that's how we do it now. And when you say you're two galleries, you actually own the art galleries as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Can you explain how you decided to get into that half of the business and the difference between that half of the business and the art half of the business? Let me give you a little bit of background, Claude, okay? Please. The art business has changed dramatically since the 70s. So I want to take your listeners back to a time when artists painted pictures and they had them represented by galleries in London, New York, wherever, or you, know, you could sell your art to local galleries and things like that. But if you wanted to be in print, you had to make your own original prints like serographs, lithographs, etchings, things like that, woodblock, liner cuts, woodblocks, things like that. Uh, they were time-consuming, annoying to make, but you could do that. But if you wanted like limited edition prints or even a line of serographs, very expensive to produce, you'd have to produce, let's say you wanted an edition of a thousand, you'd have to produce a thousand up front. If you could only sell a hundred, you'd be out of business. And so you would typically, in those days, artists would get a re relationship with a publisher that would do the publishing and do all that work for them. And then eventually with the advent of the G-clay printing and the internet, that kind of business model kind of went away. So during the 80s and 90s, when I was sort of doing my main thing in print, there was me and a bunch of other artists that were doing well just selling prints, and our business was selling prints to galleries. I sold, I went down the road of doing etchings, so all my etchings were handmade prints, and I would sell them to a distributor in London Contemporary Art that would then sell them to galleries. I would also do my own distribution to galleries, had my own sales force doing that. And I would go to trade shows around the world and we would sell to try and find distributors in Australia, South Korea, Italy, different places around the world. We would get distribution deals. So we would sell editions of prints to them. And that's how the business went. And then with the advent of Gicle, anybody could print their own stuff in the kitchen. And that whole business just died, like totally died. It doesn't exist anymore, apart from print on demand. Long story short, I went through selling my work to distribution companies who then sold it to galleries. And then I, I've had my own galleries over the years on and off, but I, I sold my work on cruise ships in the more recent past, oh. say 2007 to 2017. So that was like working with a distributor, except they distributed the work on their own galleries on about 106 cruise ships and I did events with them. And, but I ended up opening my own gallery in Carmel and 
focusing my marketing because having my own galleries enables me the freedom to do totally what I want. I get the feedback directly from the customers. Let's say I do a tree, like, and it doesn't sell. So maybe don't do that kind of tree again. I get direct feedback from customers. Whereas before, when I was working with these bigger companies, it wasn't a direct feedback from the customers. You know, when I was working on the cruise ship, it was pretty good. But a lot of them, the distribution companies in England that I was working with in the 90s, they turn around and say, we want this thing. And I'm like, that's not going to sell. That's not interesting. And they say, yeah, but that's what the trends are. And so I'd do it, and then it wouldn't sell. And then they'd say, oh, your art's not selling anymore. So it was problematic. So it's good to having your own gallery is, is a very good thing because you can create your own artwork for your own audience, and you accept all the benefits, but you also take all the risks. And you also get the other 50%. The, well, do you, you, get spend the other 70, you get to spend the other 70% on your costs, yeah. Do you rep other artists as well at those galleries or just yourself? We do rep other artists. Yeah, just just four or five other artists. Yeah. Okay. A little bit. So you, and it's not our focus. You must be prolific. Like, how much art are you producing? Because it seems like you've got art going, it seems like historically you've I had produce art about, I produce about four, between four and 600 paintings a year. Holy shit. Oh, okay. That's prolific. Yeah. That prolific. They say that's yeah. the way to do it. Like the more prolific you are, the more work you make, the more you have to sell, the more you have, the more that's out there. You either need a lot of customers or you need a big warehouse. Do you, so what we're going to get into this, do you make all the work yourself or do you have assistance in a team? I make it all myself. I've worked with a lot of people and I understand a lot of people, people like Thomas Kincaid, who used to have from 2000 and whatever onwards he used to have a lot of his work done by other people damien hurst has his stuff painted by people kahendi wiley has most of his stuff painted by chinese people in workshops over there it's not something that's ever interested me i like my own process and i like to do it all myself which is not to say i don't have assistance but i do have assistance to wash my brushes paint my backgrounds clear up after me and make sure that i just stay focused doing the stuff that i like to do so my next question is of all your work like, what are the best sellers? Does the merch and the print stuff sell more? Does, or volume wise or dollar wise, or does the actual art sell more? Where do you focus? We focus on expensive original paintings to the clients in our galleries. We do not focus on merch. We, I have a team of people that manage that for me and they put out emails and social media posts and we sell hoodies, t-shirts, prints, mugs, whatever. And it's more done as a PR thing than as a money maker. Obviously we make money at it, but it's, it's not selling real paintings. No, if you can sell the real paintings at real dollars, there's no better business. The, I think uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have a team of people because you're filming so much stuff do you have a team of videographers or do you have or is it just something as simple as tripods and cameras i have one two three we have three or four people involved in the social media side of the business i the way it works is that i basically have i have a mercer who works in our offices our sort of brand manager social media manager she follows me around with an iphone or Miles, my assistant, follows me around with an iPhone if she's not available. And my daughter, Rebecca, cuts footage to put on our gallery Instagram and TikTok. And Aubrey is up here in St. Helena. She manages the videography and everything up there. 
But the, so they're all involved in capturing the images, but I edit all the footage myself and post it all myself. Oh, okay. All right. So you're doing, you're actually doing all the video editing and video content. That's awesome. I get the others to shoot, to film it. They load it up in a file and then I go in to the coffee shop in the morning and pop it all together and I'm out the door. And so in terms of sales, I assume what percent of your sales come direct, come via your galleries, come via other people's galleries versus third-party sites? Where does, the, where does your traffic actually come from predominantly? And how has that changed in the past nine months? It's, it hasn't changed in the last nine months. It's predominantly from our two retail gallery locations. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's still old school. So even with all the inst like even all the Instagram fame, the block and tackle is still galleries. We probably sell enough on Instagram and online to make the average artist very happy, uh, but we don't consider that much compared to what we make from our regular galleries. Interesting. The and do you use other? Now that you started to get all this interest from other galleries around the world, have you? done gallery relationships with other people or you're just not in different geographies or not bothered? We get approached all the time, but so far we've not done anything about that. We, we make, the thing is, it's all about managing the narrative. We manage and control our own narrative. We do our own thing. We're very happy with it and we make more money at it. So it's harder. It's a hard sell if you were a gallery in Buenos Aires or Berlin or wherever we recently got reached out from. Like, why should we send a painting to Berlin for you guys to try and sell? It would make 50% off if you sell it or whatever. When we just sell it next week ourselves for full price. Okay. I know perhaps I'm not very good at math, but it doesn't seem to add up to me. Yeah, the, the gallery system for the most part for a lot of artists doesn't. The taking half is hard. That's the beauty of social channels and everything else. Do you have... So most of the work is coming in through your galleries and coming in organically. And so you've built like just a real classic art business. The Instagram fame is almost just like an add-on and an extra at this point. Well, commercially, the Instagram fame is only just beginning. Like I said, we've been doing it for six months. We got over, we've got 541,000 followers as of this morning from when I last looked. So. It's good for us. We've got a lot of several collaborations and even podcasts like this come through Instagram. Lots of stuff comes our way from Instagram. And so we're building it. And they just started subscriptions yesterday so people can subscribe to my Instagram. We're going to do some more in-depth behind-the-scenes stuff. So we're building it that way. So we are interested in, obviously, the idea of sitting on a beach and just scrolling through dollars as they come in from Instagram, obviously, appeals to everybody. But I don't see it. I see my core mission on Instagram is to, like I said before, it's like to, you know, entertain, educate, and inspire. I want to give my viewers a, a meaningful experience, even if it only lasts nine seconds. It gives them something to engage with, or maybe it'll inspire them to make art. Maybe it'll inspire them to think about what art is or what the message is. Maybe they'll be enraged by how easy it looks and how much I'm charging for online or how I'm wasting paper towels or, any number of other outrages that we get in firestorms across Instagram. Uh, <clears throat> but my job is not to moderate the comments or complain. I put the product out there and I love it. And most people seem to, but it's pretty fun. We do have a lot of 
outraged people saying a child can do it or whatever. And there are some artists that have put their work on Instagram and they've had it criticised, have been offended or upset by that. To be honest, I'm frankly amused and grateful for the engagement. Yeah, I think that there's always haters out there that'll tell you all the reasons that you did one with it. It takes hours and hours song and the amount of people telling me that it took five minutes, not hours is <laughs> half the comments. It's amazing. Obviously, Instagram is your channel. Do you use any of the other social channels? Do you use TikTok or Reels? Yeah, or, we do um... TikTok. Sure. We do it all. We do TikTok. We do uh, YouTube shorts for sure. Okay. Yeah. And do you post the same content across all the platforms or you try to, or? Yeah, we, we, the same content, we mix it up a little bit. Maybe we change the music or we change the caption or whatever, but pretty much the same. Yeah. We put it on Instagram first and then we feed it out from there. We actually got and reposted. We actually got reposted by YouTube recently, which was pretty fun. Really? Yeah, once it starts feeding on itself, the machine feeds and then the machine feeds and feeds. Yeah, yeah, we've been on all these crazy pages like Lad Bible or whatever and all that kind of stuff. So it's been fun. It's been definitely very fun. It's, I have a team, I have a couple of ladies whose job it is just to go through all the comments. So we can't really go through them all. It's like the comments every day. It's, it's a difficult platform for communication. It wasn't designed for communication. It was designed for showing photos. So it's difficult to have really meaningful conversations. It's not like Facebook. So you've got to go through all the messages, sift them through. It's a project. Yeah, it's not. It's and I can't even fathom the amount of engagement you have on it's something with forty-three million posts. I can't even imagine what the engagement looks like on something like that. It has to be mind. No, it's unreal. I mean, you just don't even go there. We just don't have the, just don't have the team. <clears throat> what are you going to do? Like sitting, having moderators reading through every comment, you just go insane. Now, do you have a, when you're making content, is there, have you found that there's a specific type of content that works better than other types of content? Or do you constantly experiment with new stuff? Or do you experiment with time and quality of the work and all of that? Yeah, we do a lot of A-B testing, but informally, huh. like I'll sometimes post two reels that are fairly similar, one with trending audio and one with something else and see how they perform. We do stuff like that, but we just monitor it. Like it's, we really don't overthink it. Like I do subscribe to some of these like Instagram coaches or whatever. Their advice is usually pretty prescriptive. I could, the thing is at the end of the day, make interesting content. If the content is fun to watch, then you're golden. It doesn't matter about how many hashtags you've got or whatever's in your caption for SEO. If you do something, if you make a little reel and it's really fun to watch, guess what? Everybody else thinks the same. And they're like, hey, have you seen this? They'll share it for you. They do your PR for you because you've created something which is cool to look at. Have you found Have you found a similar success on TikTok yet? Or is it still something that you're growing and building? My daughter has been posting to TikTok for, the, for our gallery page, and that's taken off. We've got about 100,000 followers now. Wow. In the last couple of months, but my own personal TikTok page, which is operated from the office, is only like about 15,000, 16,000, I think. I'm not quite sure. But so the thing is, it's the same content on both pages. So it's really weird why one would take off and one wouldn't. The kind of a mystery. The algos. Like up to the algorithm. Dear that's algorithm, it. please bless me today. Like I don't, as the case may be. That, that's exactly it. Do you, uh, and do you find that if, do you do them long? Do you do them short? Do you find that one is more effective? And actually, let me ask a different question. How much time do you spend dealing with content versus the making art part? I spend an hour a day making content. 
Okay. I get up at five every morning, get on my bike, and I go to the coffee shop, and I sit down there, and I make all my reels. I post them, and I go home for breakfast. The end. That's it. And how, and how many do you post a day? I post typically three a day. I don't ever post okay. on Sundays. And sometimes I'll post a couple of days if I'm out of the office or something weird won't happen, like I'm playing with my grandkids or something. Yeah, typically three a day. Uh, okay, so you're posting a lot. You're posting even. I was excited that I was posting one a day, and that's clearly not enough. <laughs> Sign up for my class. No, I don't have a class, so you're all right. It's, you do uh, have a class? But I, we just keep. We just no. Don't do a class. I was going to say, oh my god, I'm going to do one. But I, it's the key is keep it simple. It's not, this is short form video. This is not Hollywood. Limited edits, limited, limited everything. That, that's well, my problem. I think I try too hard. It's very simple. It's say only what you need to say an interest to tell an interesting story, then get out of the way. Yeah, that's the way to do it. You just cut to the money shot. We don't need everything. Just get me. I just I want to see the paint go over the edge. I want to see it flow and I want to feel it. Boom. That's all I want. I don't want to see all the mixing of paints off the banter between people in the studio i'm not interested i just want to see something beautiful something amazing happen that i probably wouldn't do myself that's what keeps you interested now yeah since you do most of your sales via the gallery so i assume all inbound you just focus you you just shoot to to that operation how much i guess my big question is like where are you splitting your time like how does your time look like the amount of time you do making art versus the amount of time you deal with the business of art versus the amount of time you're running a gallery, which is, has some overlap. What is your what does your breakdown look like? I run a business. So in other words, I have I have a team of people that run it all for me, so that I don't have to do any of it. That's great. How big's your team? A team of fifteen. Oh, that's a uh, so you've got a very big scale of business here. Big enough. Yeah, 15 is a yeah. good amount of payroll. And that's dealing 15, with... Yeah, 15 full-time people. And that's dealing with what? the Obviously, operating the galleries, dealing with the sales, the outreach. And so I assume they take care of keeping track of your collectors and keeping track of inventory and where all these works are going. Like, you're making a lot of work. Like, you got to keep track of a lot of art. We have an efficient system. But that... So that's the stuff I'm actually really interested in. <laughs> Oh, that, 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 it runs very smoothly. That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in, like that the, the systematic things that you put in place to create these kind of efficiencies right. that frees up your time to make art. Well, <clears throat> you start small and do something well and then add on. You know, it's like you start on your own, for example. You buy the supplies, you paint the pictures, you put it up for sale, you maybe make a website, somebody buys it, you take the process of payment, you make an arrangement with the bank, you get a bank account, you get a FedEx account, you sort of do all these things. You do your own bookkeeping and accounting, and then you sell, one day you sell two pictures, and so then they both want to be delivered on the same day, so then you have to get somebody to help you. And then, so then you've got operations department now, and then you, next day you sell four pictures, and so you, you're running out of supplies, so you need you need people to be buying supplies for you, and then it's tax season, so you need all that done, and, and it just goes on like that. So you, you put all this, just build it up like any other business, just a pure business. That's the point of this, that the most people think art is just people 
painting pictures and making art. And the reality is that so much of the work is just not. It's all the other things that allow you to make the art. Absolutely. And if you're not going to go crazy managing, doing it all yourself or managing your people, you have to have good systems in place, places that we have to have good management, such as good people in your organization that know what they're doing and are able to trust other people. So you have, say, an office manager and they do their job really well. And then you get somebody else to be their assistant and the office manager teaches the assistant everything they know. So then the office manager can take a day off when it's payroll or whatever, or they can take a vacation and you've got backup. And then the work, say, more efficiently, the office manager is able to think more creatively about taking on other roles and doing better things. So it goes like that, you know? Yeah. Someone I worked with a long time ago, had one of my favorite lines is for all employees that he ever hired, he told them their job was to make themselves replaceable. So like the person under you could go and so the business could grow and expand. I always thought that right. was like a very exactly. interesting way, way to look at. Yeah, we try to have, we have to have built-in redundancy. We have to have a situation if somebody decides to retire or have a baby or go off sick for a long time or just leave and get another job, that their job is covered by somebody else. They're shadowed by somebody. So we try and keep all that in place so that the business keeps on going. Yeah, and it sounds like you've had the wherewithal to build enough cash flow to support this type of this scale of operation, which is always I always find that's the most impressive part, right? Like that you can that well, you have you wouldn't be in business without that. <laughs> yeah, that's the hard part, right? <laughs> you've obviously hit something on the zeitgeist of kind of what people like and what people are willing to pay for. That's always not always enough, usually, right? Oftentimes people make amazing stuff that people are willing to pay for, but if they don't have business acumen to do it right, to organize correctly, to scale properly, the same success won't necessarily be there. It's a combination of all those things that creates that business expansion, if you will. Absolutely. And that's one of the complications about the art business. If you're an artist running their own gallery or their own art business is the fact that they have got to not just run the business, but they've actually got to create the product. So they both have a kind of a blue collar and a white collar position in the company. I'm the owner of the company and I'm the kind of like chief executive officer or whatever, but at the same time, I'm the guy in the back like, knocking out the product. And I'm on the assembly line. I'm that guy, <laughs> right? I'm the guy with the screwdriver on the blowtorch, but I'm also sitting in the executive suite. So <clears throat> that's one of the unique things about the art market or people that are in the craft business or makers generally, they have to juggle those two kind of realities. It's not just like a pure business where the business owner goes in and he just sits in his office all day dreaming up business schemes and managing the accounts and making sure everybody's doing their job. You've also actually got to do the job yourself. Most management is basically managing other people. Really good managers don't actually do anything themselves. They just make sure that other people are doing it. But when you're the artist, you've got to do that. And you've also got to get people to make sure that you do your job. It's funny. I actually well, never thought... Here, I never... They, they're like... <laughs> I never thought about it that way that you're like, you're the, the, at the same time, you're the CEO and you're the guy on the, the guy on the assembly line. You're you, it's both hats or it's none. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I have to have people in my business say on top of me and say, Simon, get out of the office and get this work done. You've got to have five more paintings done by the end of the week or whatever. You know? 
Oh, I love that you're love that you're doing that kind of volume. Let's switch quickly to the cost and production side. Obviously, it sounds like a lot of your money is in payroll, but where else does your where else does what are you spending the most money on? Like, what is what is that oh, happening? Payroll, <clears throat> payroll, then rent, rents. Right, because you're payroll, running brick and mortar. Yeah. Do, do art forty five thousand dollars a month on rents? Oh, okay. Okay, it's nothing to sneeze at. So, do art supplies even come close to your payroll and rent expenses? Or three and a half percent cost of goods is three and a half percent. Okay, so see, you're smart enough to look at your cost of goods. The absolutely, yeah. So many artists don't, right? So many artists don't take into to account of what they're spending. It, do you actually hold a lot of inventory, or do you just move everything, or is yes. there a big warehouse some? You hold a lot of inventory. Well, during COVID, we started stockpiling raw materials, canvas, paint, etc. No, I meant inventory in terms of art inventory. Or do you sell it as you get it? As you make it, is it gone, or do you, or do you actually keep a good amount? Does some work pile up? Like your so six hundred pieces a year. That's a lot of work. We have a, the office creates like a weekly spreadsheet of work sold and works, new works that are put in hold the on. system. So we keep a running total of the number of paintings sold each week and the number of paintings put into inventory and the total of paintings in inventory and then we what we do is so we keep uh, keep ahead of it try to keep ahead of that now obviously if you've got if you're selling 10 paintings a week and putting 10 into inventory you know you're gonna have a problem at some point even if it's six months down the line. So, no. Yeah, we used to find that there were certain seasons where we'd be, where sales would outpace production, so that would put a lot of pressure. And so then in the quieter times, you tend to try to make it up a little bit. Yeah. Now, you have obviously a bunch of different styles of work. Do you find that like some are substantially better sellers than others, and do you focus on those types of work, or do you still keep making the work that you want to make and let the chips fall where they may? We call it looks. So a lot of people think it's different styles, but it's like different looks, whatever. So I used to be in the print business where you do a painting of a flower, whatever, two paintings of flowers, and one of them was popular and the other one wasn't. And you'd sell a load of them. People say, oh, I love that flower. And then buy it again and again or whatever, because it was print, right? Then you come into like the modern era, say like a Damien Hirst or whatever, and he's painting dots or something. And obviously dots are popular for Damien because he keeps on painting dots, right? Yeah, I wonder I if you... Him painting them. don't see him painting many squares. Just uh, We have different looks, like say different kinds of trees or whatever. It's, it's a great way of managing your your creative output because I do all the things that I like doing, say like this tree behind me or whatever. So that would be a look like, the look would be on this particular tree, for example, like black background. Okay, a lot of paintings of mine have black backgrounds. Some have gray backgrounds. Some have white backgrounds. Some have like different colored backgrounds, okay? But the black background is a specific look. And so then it would be, black background with a cream colored trunk with orange leaves, right? That's say the complete thing is a look. Now, if I did that, say with a white colored tree trunk and branches and red leaves, that would be like a different look. Now, to a lot of your listeners, they're gonna be like traumatized and shocked to hear an artist talking like this, but 
at the end of the day, an artist is making products and you're not just sitting there with your head in the clouds, like dreaming up something amazing and having this incredible experience, you're actually making products. And those products, if you mark them, they have to be categorized as by whether they're moving, whether they're getting traction or whatever. And often the way that it works is say the tree behind me, let's say I'm doing a series of trees like that, then I maybe do it maybe with a bit more blue in it, maybe a bit more red in it, or maybe put two or three trees on the same kind of thing. You just slowly and gently develop the idea and change your thoughts in the process. And then you find that maybe one thing takes off and becomes more interesting to you and more interesting to your audience. So then you, then you find maybe a new look is born. Maybe in future, this painting, but with three trees is more popular than this painting with one tree. And you develop your ideas. It's a gradual process. But you are, you make the decision, like you think of this as a business, right? So if the one with three trees is selling more, you make more with three trees. Absolutely. Okay. There's different, there's different folks. There's, there's plenty of artists who like believe like they make what they make and take it or leave it. And then there's other artists who feel the market out and see what pulls them and drive in that direction. It's like this. If you, if you're a singer, and you're singing a song and nobody listens. It's got to be crazy to keep on singing the same song. Indeed. So if you maybe you sing a song, you see what you're talking about here, Colin, is quite an interesting subject because let's say you talk it, take the analogy for the musician. Let's say I had a hit record, a number one hit record, okay? You see so many bands or groups, they, they have a big hit. And they desperately try to replicate it. Yeah, of course. And they can't, they're trying too hard. It's like, you can't because it's, there's a certain magic involved. For example, let's say that tree, let's say that was a, let's just say that was a big hit. And I just kept on doing that tree. I would get bored and my audience would get bored. The whole thing would just die on me. There's no such thing as a formula. You have to keep morphing and changing. You have to keep going like it's like a river. You have to keep flowing down towards the ocean. And you have to move on into sort of like your future opportunity and you adapt as you go to the river feels a bit of resistance so the water moves this way a little bit then it feels a little bit of resistance then it goes a little downhill a little bit then it goes into a plane and it moves differently that's what it's like to be an artist to be a lifetime artist you have to adapt to the landscape in which you find yourself I and mean, you go like with what works and then what works changes and so you move to another thing if i was still trying to paint what was popular in the 70s i'd have been out of business in the 70s and i'm not trying to it's my job is not to anticipate and meet market demand but is to create market demand what a lot of artists don't understand is that their job is not to paint what's popular or what's successful is but it's actually you decide what's popular by doing it and people it becomes popular it's a totally different mindset i create popularity i'm popular because i have created what people are looking for before they see it so when they see it they recognize it it's instinctive now, there's a level that's of, why I like there's a level of confidence there that i like that that too few artists have it's very nice to see that that you decide and what you said also brings to mind, like, I, I believe that being an artist is like running a startup. And like you said, you have to iterate. You have to constantly iterate your business until you figure out what it is. And then when you have it, you think it's it. And then you have to iterate some more. It's a never ending chase of making it incrementally better. 
That's true. That's a good analogy. And but that's what that's where creativity comes alive. It's in that sort of space between what you want to do, what you're thinking of doing, and what is acceptable or what works. We've got a sort of business mission statement is to stick with what works. That that's a good. So business. we run everything through that filter. Yeah. So we're trying. To, we're thinking of doing a new thing, and then we're thinking, well, hang on, is it part of what works? No. And so okay, now- let's not do that then. So you obviously had a very successful and robust business before. Now that you have this fame component that's found, that's in essence found you, the, and we briefly touched on it earlier, but like you clearly don't like the sales that that drives is that's not drastically changing your life, your business, your payroll, like it doesn't change those things. So how are you looking at that content drive from like at some point, is that what you're looking for? Are you just having fun, like building what that is and teaching people? So we, we are definitely interested in monetizing the social media platforms, developing that, but we want to do it in a way which is respectful of our followers and uh, maintains our core focus of entertaining, educating and inspiring. And uh, we have other sources of income through selling art, through bricks and mortar, so it's not something you know, we don't wake up every morning trying to think, like, how can I make more money on Instagram? If you have 11 million views from the reels that you post that month, you can get up to 1,200 bucks a month from Instagram. Yes. Who cares? We, we get that every month, but obviously we don't even notice it, but it's a fun little target. But the thing is that we, our primary focus is not, we're not we're trying to make a buck. We're, and I think that's one reason why it's been successful, because we just, we're out there doing what we love and we're sharing the, it's the free stuff. It's like somebody will pay 30, 30, $40,000 for that painting maybe, but everybody gets to watch for free. They become part of the work. That's the cool thing. Our followers in Lagos, Nigeria, or in Santiago, Chile, or India, or wherever they are, get to hang out. And that's what is cool. Now. Obviously, this might have changed. Now, did you do you do any PR? Obviously, for the galleries, did you do it, or do you? And now that you have all of this kind of inbound traffic, do you bother with it? <laughs> no, we do, we don't. Like I said, but the thing is, it's interesting because like I'm like formally famous. You know what I'm saying? I've been famous before in different eras in different countries for different reasons. Like in the year 2000, I was the top selling artist in the UK. I had 31 people working for me and my team. And I was very successful. I was, I was in 600 galleries in the UK. And then I was represented by some of the world's largest art galleries over in America. But I've had my kind of moments, as it were. But uh, it's interesting when you've been in the business for almost 50 years that you step into different phases. Like, you know, who you were, the way you worked, who you were, your audience 40 years ago. It's totally different from the audience that you have now. And one of the things I absolutely love about Instagram is it's brought me in contact spontaneously with a large group of followers who really respond well to the work non-commercially. Like it's not that it's not like a club. You know, like if you're an original, if you buy my original paintings from my gallery, it's like a kind of an exclusive club, like rich people, whatever, buy them. This is not based on that. It's based on purely the love of art, the love of color, the love of entertainment. People, artists wanting to learn stuff, kids wanting to be entertained in the morning, whatever, or people just wanting some inspiration for their day. And it's free and it's worldwide and it's huge. And so 
it's awesome. been an outstanding experience for me. It's good. It's like the, your career has clearly expanded over the decades. Do you have customers that have traveled with you that whole time, or is each yes. segment kind of a new set of a new audience? You drag certain fans with you all the way, but you're constantly getting new people. Like most of my, I'd say probably all my Instagram followers, have no idea about mm. my Your past. past. None. They're not interested, and I'm quite frankly, I agree with them. It's maybe not interesting. What's interesting is what's happening now. <laughs> yeah, it's... and I'm sixty. I'm sixty-four years old, and I suddenly find myself insta famous and loving it. And I love going through DJing these kind of reels, listening to the sort of music and discovering musicians that I would never have heard of. Now I'm still stuck in the kind of John Denver era, but certainly <laughs> more music has actually been produced since then. And in, in, indeed, it has. The so we're coming up towards the end of the interview. We've been at this for almost an hour. I usually ask a couple questions for people. Look, it's uh, as uh, I say it all the time: successes are revised mistakes. I always ask people, "What was the going back in their business? One of their like, their, what was their biggest mistake and the thing that they wish they did, or the biggest lesson they learned? And what are you most proud of in terms of inter a big success and where you're going?" That's, that's a great question. I think off the top of my head, I'd say my biggest mistake or failure was turning over control of my business to other interests back in the day, whether it be large galleries or distribution companies or whatever, allowing myself to be subject to that. Mm -hmm. What was the other one? It's like, where am I going or whatever? What are you most proud of these days? What's your biggest achievement what these days? What most proud of these days? Yeah, these days I think that I am most proud of the fact that my work in its current format has struck a chord with millions of viewers. Yeah. That excites me because I have been subject to art distribution agreements and other galleries representing me throughout my whole life. And now I'm able to go not just to the people that will come through the walls of my the doors of my gallery, but I'm able to go into the onto the screens of normal people, whoever they are, just sitting there scrolling. And I'm finding that whatever it is that I'm doing is really exciting normal people who just see it. And to me, that is the thing I'm most proud of, the fact that my work, whatever I'm trying to achieve, is obviously working with normal people, whoever they are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and that's, I just don't think I can get better than that, honestly. Yeah, you're speaking to the masses. It's, it's an artist's dream that you can touch that many people's lives in a positive fashion is just, it's awesome. It's great to see. And that's why I was attracted to your work. That's why I follow you. That's, and now that I've actually learned a lot more about you, it's even more impressive. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be this impressive when we first spoke, to be perfectly honest. I'm just that old dude standing by a paint tube who obviously has no clue what he's doing. And that's what it looks like. So I think that's why people enjoy it. But apparently there's more to me than meets the eye. Do you, have, do you have any tools or tips or ideas or, or things to pay it forward to young artists who are just starting the struggle? Yes, absolutely. So here's the thing. Young artists learn to draw from life. It's absolutely critical. Stop copying photos. You're killing yourself. You'll get nowhere. Most artists today that I see coming out of art school, even on Instagram, have become, they're trying to impress people by how good they are at copying a photo. And honestly, yeah. a photo's already done a better job of it than you have. And 
by copying a photo, you're limiting yourself in terms of your understanding of the real world. If you go out and sit in front of an actual tree, like when I was in my teens, I would I sat down in front of a tree one day and I decided that I was going to draw every single branch on that tree and where a branch went behind a branch, I would make it clear that it was behind and I'd do it three-dimensionally and it was like, it took me forever, but I still have that drawing, but every single branch, every single bird was on that tree. And the more you actually studied nature and work from it directly, the more it gets into your veins. And one of the reasons why my artwork is so organic and so natural now is that it flows from a connection, a mind-body connection between subject and creation in a way which is totally organic. So I often joke with people when I'm on Instagram about painting a tree. I'm like, I'm growing my own forest today. You know what I'm saying? The tree's not painted so much they grow. The flowers bud. It's just sort of the birds are there singing or whatever. It's because I've studied them from life for so long. It's become a natural, ingrained part of my psychological process. And I wouldn't have got that by working from photos. And it's probably one of the reasons why your work connects right? It's probably like one of those intangible kind of qualities that find its way into your work that, that, that makes this, as, makes your work as popular as it is. Yeah. It's just, it's a spiritual dimension, which is present in the person doing the art, which is either present or it's not. And it's the spiritual dimension that speaks to people that, like I say to artists, I say, stop trying to impress people with how good of an artist you are, because people are not interested in how good you are. They're only interested in how the work moves them. The viewer is interested in what interests the viewer. 100%. But as you say... If people go away from... If people go away from my work and think, that guy's a brilliant artist, that's not as good as if they're going away about, oh, that picture makes me feel so great. Somebody said on Instagram once, my, my, my anxiety level went from a 10 to a 2, like in two minutes. Yeah, I always tell people. And then everybody chimed in and said, me too, me too. I always tell people that I, there's nothing worse than it's nice. Like I would either someone love it or hate it than tell you it's nice. Like that it struck some sort of quarter emotion, positive or negative, because that means you're moving somebody. The funny thing is that we love the negative comments because when the negative comments start coming through, so we have like hundreds of thousands of views, whatever on videos, easy. But when the negative, when the hate comes, that's when we start hitting the millions. It's so funny. Oh, you know, people go in, they start hating on it, and then the engagement goes way up, and then the, that's when you get the that's when you get the millions. It's great. You're not going to get millions of positive comments. You're going to get hundreds of thousands of positive comments. But if you want to go, if you want to really be popular, give them something to hate. If you want to really be popular, get millions of people hating you. That's a that's brilliant. That's my, and on that note, we're going to call it a day. If they haven't found you, because it sounds like half the world has already, but what are the best places to find you both digitally and physically? Just Simon Ballard. You can find out everything you want from there. The links are all there to our galleries in Carmel and St. Helena in California. Okay. Simon Ballard, S-I-M-O-N-B-U-L-A-R-T, gets the job done. And uh, we'd love to have you as our followers. And you could even probably subscribe for ninety nine a month. Make me a rich man. Oh, what are they subscribing to? Oh, they're going to get tutorials, extra behind the scene content. Everybody's been asking me if I teach, and I don't. But I've decided I'm going to give a few. I'm going to give a few lessons, like a few tips, more personal content. Like I was sitting in the coffee shop, chatting with my subscribers this morning as I shared my morning 
moment with my coffee and everything. And so we're going to be sharing with the subscribers how things are really done rather than just like that 10 second clip on Instagram. Ah. You know, I'll be talking about the materials. I'll be talking about the process of painting. I'll be talking about the business of art. I'll be talking about a lot of the things we talked about here. But I'll be doing it like to our subscriber base so they can get like clued in more stuff. So yeah, I wish I asked about that stuff sooner. So that's like a that's like such an interesting, such a especially with an audience of your size, like such a scalable model that if done correctly can theoretically drown out the rest. Yeah, I mean we, we just started it yesterday actually. So it's like still a new thing that we're formulating. But the idea would be to get to a hundred thousand versions of five dollars a month would be not bad really. Oh, I'll, hey, you're going to get five bucks a month out of me. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be worth it. So if it's scalable to us, because we just do it once for five people, 500 people, 5,000 people, we're going to give value for money for sure. And do you, you do, know? and would you put that on YouTube or like a, as a gated YouTube or would it be, uh, do you do YouTube? No, that's all going to be on Instagram. Instagram. Oh, just gated on YouTube. I do YouTube. I do. That would all be on Instagram, but I do YouTube. Mainly, I stopped doing it once we started on Reels, but uh, we do, we post our Instagram Reels on YouTube Shorts. But yeah. the Instagram, YouTube is more longer videos where I'm explaining stuff and talking about my ideas and so on. And so we'll probably chop that kind of content up a little bit and deliver it through to our subscriber base, things like that. Brilliant. Hey, Simon, what a pleasure it was talking to you today. Thank you for your time, your insight. I've got a zillion great quotes and comments in there. I appreciate it, and we'll keep following you and look forward to giving you five bucks a month. Thanks, Kalodney. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me on the show, and have a great day. All right, we're back, everybody. Okay, so let me give you my basic formula for an artist opening a gallery. Okay. Yep, I'm ready. So <clears throat> I'm just going to tell you the truth now, okay? How I did my gallery. All right. Okay. I had, I was earning good money, like as an artist, right? Obviously. Good money, but I wanted to send my daughter to private school, to college. And <clears throat> I wasn't going to take out a student loan, but I didn't have enough money to pay for her education like right there, you know what I'm saying? Yep. So it was down to this fact. I would either not send her to college or send her to the local community college, or I would earn some money to send her there. I'm an artist, so I make money selling art. So <clears throat> my wife and I went for dinner in town one night, and on the way out, we saw a sign in, the gallery, in a gallery window saying for rent. And we thought, that looks expensive. I better call that guy. So we called and we made an offer that was accepted. Now at this point, I had absolutely zero money to pay that rent, let alone the deposit and everything. So here I am, it's like middle of December, my daughter starts school in January, and I have money for school fees, and I don't have money for rent for the gallery. All right. So I think I'll go to the bank and I'll take out some money. So I went to the bank and said, I'd like to, you guys can give me $50,000 line of credit. And she said, no. And when the words came out of her mouth, something inside me snapped and I stood up and I reached over and I shook her hand and I said, I want to thank you so much for not giving me the money because why should I, as an artist, ask you for money when I can ask my customers? Okay. So I went out 
and I wrote to three of my previously good customers, three of my good customers. I said, I'm trying to raise $50,000 to open this gallery. I'm going to give you a 65% discount against future purchases if you'll front me the money. Two days later, I was sitting on top of $45,000 and I opened my gallery. Now, did you and take I that forty? Did you take that $45,000 as discounted work? Yeah, I sold them. I, they cashed it in. One of them cashed it in. The other one hasn't cashed it in. But they, the thing is that I, the point is I opened the gallery with zero debt. Makes it one less bill you got to pay. But we opened the gallery and on the first day. We sold a painting for $5,000. And then for the next two weeks, we didn't sell anything. And then at what point did you, <laughs> at what point did panic set in? And what did you do to change that? Or did it just change on its own? We Running a gallery is like driving a car. You can't take your hand off the wheel. But you don't want to yank the wheel. You just keep on making micro adjustments. So we just kept on making micro adjustments until things came right. Then we went forward. But I say to people, if you have, um, if a farmer wants a bigger crop, you can micro farm the same field. But even if you micro farm that field the same amount, it's you still can't get more out of it. The only way you can get a bigger crop is with a bigger field. But if you don't have the resources for a bigger field, what you can do is you can go and find someone with a bigger field and agree to share your crop with them in exchange for letting you farm their field. And then you start farming their field and then need someone to harvest your crop. You share the benefit with them and you take less but over time you end up with a smaller piece of the pie but it's a very big pie bigger pie yeah initially you just have everything of a small pie and a lot of people are not willing to take a that they cannot understand the concept of a small piece of a big pie being more than a whole small pie yeah because it's the lack of vision often yeah, so the more you grow, the more you have to share. Like the old adage, the more you give, the more you get. Yeah, because you know, you're giving to your bookkeeper, you're giving to your office manager, you're giving to the cleaners, you're giving to your marketing people. They're all sharing in the crop, but you can grow more stuff. Because they can focus, what, 100% on making sales calls all day. You actually make art as opposed to me who makes art for an hour or two hours a day, then tries to get a couple sales things in and then does misses three days of that. Like it's, it, you can scale much faster if you focus people in the places where they do best. That's right. Yeah. And there's that, that's what most artists, most artists, unfortunately don't think that way. Most artists think Let's make art, right? So it's figuring out how to maximize, figure out how to, you, you can't get, you can't have a big business without a big team. They just don't exist. It goes back to our mantra, stick with what works. <clears throat> you have to start out by finding something that works and then you tweak it and build it to make it work better. Because what I knew before I opened the gallery was I knew that people liked my work and I could sell it because I've been selling it on right. cruise ships, right? So I knew I had universal appeal. That wasn't the problem. The problem was I didn't want to sell it on cruise ships anymore because I wanted to get full price. I wanted to get all the money myself, as it were, and I wanted to have control over my margins and my market. And I didn't want to be traveling all the time. I wanted to stay home and do my thing.
When you did your stuff on the cruise ships, did you get customer information or they, they kept it all? No, I just supplied the company and they did all that. So you were just, they bought inventory from you and that was it? But they just bought a lot of it? Yeah. Yeah, they, it would be, yeah, basically, yeah. Cool. They were there. So instead of having a thousand customers, I had one customer, one corporate <laughs> customer, yeah. Yeah, who had thousands of customers. And but that's pretty much how I'd always done my business. I'd always had corporate customers. Yeah, but the, the disadvantage of that is you're not in control of your business. You lose your one customer, you lose your whole business, as opposed to now, if you lose one customer, it doesn't make a difference. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But then yeah. they did all the marketing, they did all the sales, they did everything yeah, of course. I did was the art. So the swings and roundabouts, but I've come to a stage in my career when I can handle it pretty good. Sounds like you're handling it, it way works. more than pretty good. It works. It works for me, but we, we have to keep on selling stuff. Yeah. No, I get and it. So, so we have to keep it real. We have to keep on getting better. And we did we focus. We have focus meetings. We have team meetings, people. We just, I don't know. It's a good place to be in. I have a fabulous team and I, I just am able to focus on doing what I do. And I try to be inspiring to my team, try to do a good job. I can't wait and to most emulate. Of, most of all as well. We, deliver a great customer experience. We treat our customers extremely well. We have a white glove delivery and hanging service for everything they buy. Oh, okay. How do you do that in other cities? We ship, we ship okay. out of state, but in the Bay Area, which is 80% of our customers. Yeah, so most of your customers are geographically convenient to you? Yeah. Wow. We, we sell obviously all over the place. Second, California is our number one state, then then Florida, then Texas. I can't yeah. just, if that's the case, I can't even fathom how big your business could be if you're just moving that kind of merch in one market, like that kind of inventory in one market. That's amazing. We had toyed with the idea of opening in central London earlier on this year, but we're glad we didn't now. What would, what's going on in England? I, just right. that. I was in England last week for a week and... It's fucking delightful. Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's like a classy, uh, it's a classy New York. <laughs> no, it's good. But yeah, there's lots of, we have lots of options. We're just keeping it real at the moment, doing what we do. It's awesome. It really is, man. You inspired, I needed to hear this story because it inspired the shit out of me. Um, got me all geared up and raring to go. Thanks. I often find that when you get like the real story, like how did it really happen? That's a lot more interesting than, hey, we were rich and famous and wanted to know how to yeah, spend our it's, investment. It's, it's way you better. <laughs> so, and by the way, my, my daughter graduated and we never failed in paying her school tuition or her everything and now she's got a great job and everybody lived happily ever after there you go that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> there you go yeah uh, oh, oh right. this was awesome man thank you sir i appreciate your time i appreciate the extra i appreciate the stories this was good i will keep following you and i will give you five dollars a month i'll look you up on instagram what is it ballsy or something are you on the ballsy or no no Kaladni art Kaladni. Kaladni art is my instagram and then the the tiktok i'm converting into ballsy and then you do. I've seen one of your videos and it would look like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I play with balls all day. How bad yourself. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. Now I'm playing with giant balls. I'm actually going to go blow some up as we speak. So, Great. All cool. right. Thanks, Have Simon. Fun. Thanks, Bye. Rodney. Bye. Bye.